Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Work, the podcast is sponsored in part by Oscars, a restaurant and event venue in downtown Palm Springs. Oscars plays host to a variety of events throughout the week, including live blues music on Monday evenings, a female celebrity impersonator show called Oscars Cabaret on Friday and Saturday nights, a fabulous drag brunch called The Bitchiest Brunch on Sunday mornings, and a world-famous tea dance on Sunday nights from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. For a complete list of their events and dinner menus, please visit OscarsPalmSprings.com. Welcome to Work the Podcast. We are so excited to have our guest today, Marcellus Reynolds. Oh my God, so excited. A true Renaissance man, actor, host, model, okay, and author of this fabulous book that we have right here, Supreme Models, Iconic Black Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. That's me. Yes. (laughs) Can I say just off the bat, it's one of the most beautiful table books I've ever seen in a really, really long time. And I'm so excited that I personally have one. And um, <laughs> and I know Kim has one because I, I see it right over there. Right over here to my left. Mr. Reynolds bought his own. So we it's like a book club. It's, it's like, like a, Oprah Book Club. Book club up in here. The I'm fanciest saying. book club ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that I'm here and it finally lined up and we're all here at the same time. We made it happen. Well, let's start with you were born in Chicago. Born and raised south Mm. side. Yes. Not only were you wrote this beautiful book, but you're an actor, fashion stylist, entertainment reporter, TV host, and you were on Big Brother too. That's how I ended up in LA out of uh, out of all the things that bought that could have bought me to the West Coast. Big Brother bought me to West Coast. Oh, really? I had mo- I had modeled for a really long time and I always say when people are like, "Oh, you used to model." I'm like 20 years and 20 pounds ago. <laughs> Clearly. Um probably now 30 pounds. Uh uh <laughs> But yeah, I modeled for a really long time and I lived kind of all over the world and uh, that really formed who I am. Living outside of the United States, I think, forms who you are, especially for like a little black boy from the south side of Chicago. When you grow up on the south side, you're not supposed to leave the south side. Right. Growing up the little black gay kid, I had to get the hell out of the south side. I had to get the hell out of Chicago to figure out who I was and find the the love and the respect that I deserved as a human being because I wasn't getting it there. When did you start modeling and getting into really finding out who you are and what you wanted to be? So I got my first job in retail when I was like 15, when you're supposed to be 16 um, to work in Chicago, but I lied about my age. And I worked on the north side, and that was where the, that's where I first found acceptance as a as a gay guy, as a gay kid. And from there I just always like sort of lived and and not lived I still lived on the south side with my mama but I my life was on the north side where I found acceptance um as a gay person and then I graduated from high school and my mother was like it wasn't gonna pay for me to go to college because I wanted to be a the I was a theater major and she was like I'm not doing that I'm not paying for you to go to school to be a theater major be a nurse 
you know, be a, <laughs> you know, do something professional like yeah. she was, but I'm not paying for that. So I had to work my way through college slowly and I was still working in rest. I was working in retail. Then that led to bars. Then that led to restaurants. And then I got discovered by the woman that discovered Cindy Crawford at a restaurant in Chicago where everybody went, a really popular restaurant. When you're a waiter, you sort of hate a table that's just women because they're going to be high maintenance, want everything on the side, want everything done a specific <laughs> right. way. And then the tip is supposed to be like not as good as like a, a, a normal table. However, I didn't have that problem with women because I was kind of a weasel and I figured out ways to get a higher tip because I was always like smiling and funny and like charming and engaging. So I didn't have those isms. But I didn't want to wait on that table that day because I didn't want to be working lunches. So I walked up to the table with an attitude. Oh, look, just with an attitude. Okay. And the ladies were like, you should be a model. And I was like, girl, have the salmon. Because I thought they were hitting on me. And then they were like, no. And then the one woman was like, no, that's Mary Bonesher. She owns an agency. And the other woman was like, ha, 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 do you think we've done this before? And it turned out that the woman that laughed was Marie Anderson. And she was famous because she had discovered Cindy Crawford and made her into a model. And um, and the list of people that Marie had discovered sort of took under her arm, her wing, and made into models and personalities was just massive. So you're like, oh, really? I did like a 180 <laughs> so quick. My attitude, my face changed so quick. I was like, who are you? Oh, my God. What's the agency? Oh, I have a friend that's with Aria. And literally, like a month later, I had a comp. And a week to the day, I got my first booking. And I was like, I'm Wow. out of here I'm like literally done because as a young boy you were into fashion magazines you knew models you were like this is I'm about this life and you never thought about being I a never, model though yourself you know my grandmother got Ebony and Jet and so those were the Bibles yes. I read those from cover to cover but those were really the first magazines I saw that like showed me that there were black doctors, black debutantes, black professionals, black celebrities that weren't basketball players. Right. They were a real source, a real slice of black life. And so that actually sort of spurred me to dream. Because yes. I was like, if this black person can be a doctor, I can be a doctor. If this black person can own 10 McDonald's, and be the vice president of McDonald's Corp., maybe I can own a McDonald's. If they can live in Hinsdale, maybe I can live in, you know, it just opened my eyes to all the possibilities. And of course, Ebony covered black models, like literally everything Iman did, everything Dorothea Towles did, everything every black model ever did, Beverly Johnson. And that was fascinating to me. So you mentioned being gay. It's wild, too, because, you know, a lot of us grew up in these religious households where it was like, no, there's no such thing as being gay. But here you are before you even have the language or you know how to identify yourself. You're getting bullied or you're getting, you I know. I always say that, too. I say before I even know who I was, I was assigned uh, labels. Yeah. And they were very cruel labels. You know, um, when you're like six, seven, eight, ten, you're not running around you know, thinking about, I, I like this person or that person really. That's right. right. You know what I mean? Especially not me because I was the like kind of bush, bookish kid. I was in the house all the time. Mm -hmm. My mother and my grandmother knew where I was every second of the day. So I wasn't going over other people's houses. We couldn't eat at nobody's house. I don't know how they cook. I don't know what they right. use in their food. No, you can't eat over there. No, you're not staying the night. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know nothing. I wasn't, I didn't have no crushes on nobody. Yeah. You know, I certainly wasn't using my grandmother's phone or my mother's phone to call nobody. So I was in this like bubble of like still a kid kid. Right. But I was super theatrical, you know, and always in the school plays and always into that. And 
sadly, the things about you that are special in maybe black neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods are the things that they make you torment the you for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So even though I was like a unicorn in a field of cows, that didn't go over very well with the cows. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody wasn't so, like, you know, yes. You know, this is sparkle, Marcella sparkle and the yeah. need to be seen didn't go over very well with the, you know, with the guys trying to figure themselves out and be tough like their brothers and their cousins and their fathers, if their fathers were in the home. And, you know, I had a rough ass childhood. So did you feel like, you know, Ebony and Jed and you, t- you talk about in the book too, Charlie's Angels and all these shows was like an escape for you from, you know, um, I was the kid that was bullied. And so I, th- the moment that the bell rang at the school, I ran home. Um, and so I'd get home and beat my brother and my cousin home because they was out in the streets and plop down in front of the television in, in my grandmother's house. And, um, turn on the television it was probably if I timed it rightly the end of the 30 minute soap opera at the edge of night was like <laughs> was just going off not the edge of night and so my grandmother watched her story so she would oh. be getting ready to get up and like start dinner or figure out what she was going to do because the stories was now off right so I would catch the end of edge of night and then I would watch the 330 movie on channel 7 but I also watched like Charlie's Angels and the love boat and the love boat was especially interesting for me because Isaac was the back the black bartender yeah. yeah. And the love boat took you to exotic locations and everybody had conversations and everybody like fell in love or, or got what they wanted by the end. You know what I mean? And Fantasy Island was like really long time. I thought Fantasy Island was a place that you could actually go. And I was like, fuck Disney. Let's go to Fantasy Island. My fantasy is to get the hell off of the South Side. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> we just did an episode with uh, Greg Butler, and he described his first addiction was escape into fantasy. You Do you think that was true for you as well? Oh, God, absolutely. Um, I love the book. My grandmother had a, a set of encyclopedias, and then she somehow got like a, a, like a subscription to the classics. So there were all these crazy books that... Like nobody read except for me. Right. So a bunch of Hemingway, Moby Dick, right. you know, all the classes, yes. the Grapes of Wrath, you know, right. that kind of thing. So here I am, like, you know, after I finish my homework, I'm like reading these amazing books, you know, by some of the world's greatest writers. And then I'm reading Ebony and then I'm reading Jet. You know, Jet was like a little bit ghetto. Then I'm reading Jet for the gossip. <laughs> yeah, you know, go downstairs to. Did I go downstairs to my mama's house because we all lived in the same building? My grandmother, my grandparents owned the three flat. And then I go downstairs to my mama's house, and then I'd read Essence. And every oh. now and then, my mother would have like Vogue because she was a fashion girl, so she would have like you know. Like, if there was a black person on the cover, my mother would have Vogue. That's right. You know what I mean? Yes. So Beverly That's Johnson right. was on the cover, or Sheila Johnson, and, but she always had Essence. So, like, I'd be, like, reading Essence, you know, instead of, like, you know, doing my homework, I'd be like, Mom, 
I want to give you a home permanent. <laughs> Curls are in this year. And my mother would be like, let's do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> or I'd be like, the new color is bright pink, mom. Let's do your toes. Because <laughs> she would be like, okay. Oh, <laughs> I love it. How did my mother not know I was gay? Because I was legit giving her like a pedicure and talking about my day from like the time I was like 10 on. She's like, oh, no, my baby's just creative. She's just creative. Yes, he's just, you know. <laughs> It's <laughs> just creative. So you do escape. You know, you get this contract, and now you're a model traveling all over the world. I mean, what was that? What was that like? God, it was like there was this weird. It was like all these like sort of not wafy boys because we weren't wafy, but all these like different boys like sort of erased all the guys that were in GQ that were like classically handsome, yeah, or had perfect bodies or were like super tall. So I was like right there when that happened. So and then it was also this moment where it was like a real black boy came into play. Mm-hmm. So when I started, it was like me and then Tyson and Richard Elms and um, the Cannon brothers were killing it. We were all like, this is horrible, but I will remember this for the rest of my life. One of my first agents called me undiluted. He was like, oh, like, I, like, I, I, he was like, like, he was like, I was looking for a good undiluted black boy. Not and undiluted. I was like, okay. And then I was like, okay. you know what? You're actually kind of right. I am undiluted. I don't have like, I'm not light, light skin. I don't have like, you know, blue eyes. I don't have like right. the blonde curly hair. I'm right. like, you know, sort of undiluted. And yeah. he was like, he was like, you, he was like, you can make me a fortune because you got good teeth. You're funny. You smile. And, and, he was right. I made him. A, I, I I was a money maker. I didn't get as far as I thought I was going to get in my career because um, Tyson. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like Tyson cock blocked me at every turn. It was yeah. so ridiculous. It He's was like, like undiluted, undiluted. Uh, like, but then the thing, <laughs> it was all funny. It was also funny too because I was never like I knew all of them. And Boris Kojo yeah. and Jason Olive and I would do my thing in Miami. You'd go down to Miami for season. You'd go to you follow the show. So you'd be in New York for the summer. Um, you'd go to Europe for a little bit, ping pong back and forth. So we'd go to castings and you see everybody in the casting. And each person had their own thing. You know, Richard Elms, even though he was probably my age at that point, looked like somebody's daddy. He had this whole like sort yeah. of sexy daddy vibe right. going on. And he ended up in a Madonna video. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Olive was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life, but he was super tall. So yeah. back then you couldn't be like six one was like pushing it. You had to be between five eleven and six one. Um, you had to be almost like I, I call it the perfect boys. You had to be sample size. Yes. So you had to be like a thirty eight jacket or forty jacket, no bigger than a forty jacket. You needed to be like a thirty thirty one waist to fit the European um, collection. Wow. Yep. Um, you needed to be like a ten shoe. You and so, what, what are I the ca- are the castings for the shows? Or castings for just- are for the shows, right. but they're for catalogs. Okay. Therefore, uh, you know, I was a huge catalog boy. Therefore, ridiculous editorial bookings, and you go to these castings, and there's like three hundred people. But if they're just looking for black wow. boys, it's literally like you and like maybe the twenty black boys that went to you know Paris that season, or yes. the twenty right. black boys that went to Miami that season. Yeah, and we saw each other, and um. And I got over at first I was like really threatened by other black boys because that's kind of the slave mentality that comes through. You know, yeah, they and there's such a small one. pool, you know, they right. yeah, exactly. Especially back then, because you could be you could be on a Bruce Weber set and Bruce would have like gangs of models. There would literally be like 30 models there. 
but there was one black boy and there was one black girl and the black girl could literally pass. Then there was maybe one Hispanic guy and there was one Hispanic girl and she could pass. Yeah. And the rest were like every iteration of white person. A redhead, a brunette, a brunette with blue eyes, a blonde with blue eyes, every iteration of white you could get. Yeah. But you know there were four ethnics if you right. were lucky. You know what I mean? And every now and then there would be like an Asian girl who was like a who was literally like a unicorn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and so you kind of every time you went to one of those cattle call castings you were like okay there's only one black space yeah but then when you went to the castings where it was like oh for like a bunch of black people and you saw people and you got to talk to them it humanized it for you and you were like i just hope one of us gets it it was like i was in that conversation when when tyson got ralph lauren and we all of us had gone and had conversation had done the dance at ralph lauren you know what i mean and that all was of a, us and that was done, a big big he was it was a Turn big deal and it yeah. was a big client, but we all worked for that client. Right. So when Ralph sort of um when it came out that Tyson got the contract, Tyson was at the right place at the right time, and Tyson had the right team behind him. Tyson had Beth Ann behind him, who was this pivotal fish person in in the book, the godmother in the book. Yeah, we're gonna talk personal, about um who was this pivotal person in fashion. Yeah. So it, it wasn't, it almost wasn't like, okay, who's going to get the, it wasn't for Tyson. It wasn't like, who's going to get the Ralph Lauren contract. It literally was like, who is going to put Tyson under contract? Right. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, who's going to get the Ralph contract. Cause we were all working for Ralph. I had done that dance with Ralph, but it really was with Tyson. It was like, he just had the right team behind him and the right momentum behind him at the right moment. It was like, who was going to do this? And thank God for Tyson, because when Tyson broke, and started getting all that press and all that ink, it broke it open further for the rest of us. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, we need to get a boy like Tyson. And so you got, you know, I always say that I was Tyson with good teeth. Because Tyson, <laughs> when he started, had that big-ass gap between his teeth. I ain't going to front. I was like, I love you, Tyson. I, but he had a big-ass gap between his teeth, but my teeth were perfect. So I would go in there, and I would be like, ting. <laughs> You know, so I would get the commercials. You know, we all got, we all had our thing. Richard was like kind of like a daddy and had that sexy thing going. I had that young, like, I was doing juniors until I was like damn near like 28. I would still be jumping around in like, you know, Tommy Hilfiger stuff, you know, like jumping, literally jumping around. That's me. Go in, jump around, smile, act like you, act like you 18. Get the money and go home. You yeah. know what right. I mean? Like we all had our shtick, you know. We all had our stick. Boris booked everything. Jason booked some, you know, we Jason booked some. Jason I mean, you knew if you were going in with his personality, you knew Jason was gonna book a commercial. Oh, you know, I was gonna say go he did a lot of commercials. Yeah. Jason would you know, it was like, yeah. Why are you here? Yeah. Like <laughs> give me something. Yeah. <laughs> you know you're about to get that Levi's campaign. But exactly. <laughs> But, you know, we all felt like that. Like, I had a friend, Nathan, who had, like, these giant pecs. And, like, every time, like, I would go in there, like, Coco from Fame and, like, finally strip down and take off my top. Here come Nathan with his tits out. And I would be like, well, damn, I'm not going to get this. (laughs) With my baby abs. I live. Oh, oh my God. Because I had to, like, take it off my clothes was, like, a big deal. I would be like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't know why. Now I wish I had that body I had back then. Right. Okay. I'd be running the streets at a jock strap now. <laughs> oh my God, you're so funny. I was like, how much is it paying? 
<laughs> is there usage? Right. I'll do it. Fine. Right. <laughs> so how do you transition from modeling to style? How do you start styling? I was in, I love this part of my journey because it's so random. It's the summer of 2000. I'm in New York. I'm still modeling. I am, uh, the thing about modeling too is like, you meet the most incredible mm -hmm. people as a model. And I think you understand this, both of you understand this in entertainment. It's like, it doesn't matter where you start because it gives you so many places where you can go. Yeah. So I was never freaked out about what would happen when I stopped modeling because first and foremost, black don't crack. And secondly, I loved the business of fashion. So I thought I would end up being a booker because I loved the business side of it. I loved the deals and I loved and many do and, and the, the usage and the many yeah. models end up, especially male models, end up bookers. Yeah. And so I thought I was going to be a booker because I loved that whole thing. And then one of the reasons why I think I did so well as a model was because I loved fashion and I understood fashion. So I would walk into a casting and I would look like what you wanted. You know what I mean? So if I was if you were if I was going to see Ralph, I would come in giving you like the great Gatsby dandy with a little hip hop. If I right. was doing Tommy, I would come in giving you like my my take on hip hop. If I was doing uh Calvin Klein, who was a client of mine, I would come in giving you minimalist chic. You know, I had a great pair of, of gray flat front wide leg trousers and I wore them with a blue cashmere v-neck with a gray t-shirt under it. And I remember that day because they were like, I wish you could wear what you were wearing right now. And I was like, I know, <laughs> it's good. Right. Um, so it was, modeling was a crash course in, in chic. And it was a crash course in how to dress the part, even though you weren't that thing. You were dressing for what you wanted to become. And um, I was in New York. I was on speed. I was, because uh, th there was this weird thing that models always learn, like, stupid tricks, right? So to stay skinny, model boys would make fake speed. So basically, you go. Okay. I go to the Dwayne Reed. What is fake? Because I call speed? it. I, I would call it Dwayne Reedy. Because you know, <laughs> I have a black friend who spells his name Dwayne, but D U A N E. <laughs> right. And when my, when my friend Kathy was a model, she first came to New York. She was like, "Oh, let's go to Dwayne Reedy," and I was like, "It's Reed. The E is silent." So for years, <laughs> we called it Dwayne Reedy every right. time we wanted to go to you the. You Let's go to the Dwayne Reedy, and people would be like, "What the hell? Are these two like rubes talking about?" I love. Um, so we went. So you go to the Dewan Reedy, and you'd get you get caffeine pills. So you would do high doses of caffeine pills, aspirin, and you would do primatine mist pills. Because I had they no had idea they were caffeine pills. Ephedrine in it. Yeah, it was like a tablet. Okay. And you do like you you take all of these three things together. <laughs> And it basically was like speed. So, but it kept you skinny as hell, but it also had you like bouncing off what? the walls. Yeah. So I would go into the castle and I was like, hi, I'm Marcellus, let's go. What are we doing today? You know, I'd be like, or like, I'd go to a student and I'd be like, jump. Do you want a small jump? Do you want to jump? Do you want to try? I can do everything. Let's go. So I was skinny as hell. The, 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 the fake speed was giving me migraines. I really wasn't working because. I had gotten to the point where I had aged out of being a junior and I was still too young to sell a suit convincingly. I was just kind of like hanging out, going on castings, taking the occasional booking. And my friend who had been a model who I lived with in Miami was now working for, for Christy Turlington 
at Sundari, her skincare company, as the in-house PR person. Wow. Okay. So Kathy was like, boy, come work with me, you deadbeat, and I'll pay you $15 an hour to stuff envelopes and to, like, run errands for us. Okay. So a couple of days a week, I would be like, fine. Or she would call me and she'd be like, just come over. But basically, it was... I was friends with Kathy. Kathy worked for Christy. I had met Christy, and I had met her partners, and they thought I was funny. So basically, it was me coming to work and hanging out with Christy Turlington and the two other partners and Kathy all day, just laughing and yeah. being silly because I was basically on fake speed. So job. I would just be like, <laughs> so they would be like, stuff these samples in the envelope and take the envelope to and take these samples to the post office right there on West Broadway. So I would be like, yes, and then Christy would be like well I need to I'm going to lunch do you want to come to lunch with me so then I would go to lunch with Christy Turlington and then people would be like Christy Christy and I'd be like stop talking to her this is Christy Turlington or people would come up and try to talk to her and I would be like get away from her like it's Christy Turlington but that was basically my job to yeah. like hang out and be in New York and like it was so crazy that summer was so crazy because that was the summer of Giselle so I met Giselle because another one of my friends was like assistant to a woman that had been Naomi's assistant and she had started a business where she was like personal assistant to all the supermodels mm. so like I'm standing there one day holding Vita Giselle's dog I met Amber Valletta and Amber didn't want to shake my hand which I was like completely insulted by um uh but and she was like a germaphobe uh, um ah. One day, Frederic got like a last minute booking and we're like literally walking around uh, like Chelsea with this baby in a pram, Megan and I with Frederic's baby because I had nothing to do, on, but I had nothing but time on my hands. But to styling, my friend Lainey, who I met in London, who had been a model, was now working for British Vogue. She was in town and she was like, I'm here shooting collections, the collections for British Vogue. I need a stylist. I already pulled all the clothes. I just need somebody to steam and pin and and dress the models. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, I guess I can do it. I mean, God knows I've done it myself, you know, a million times. Exactly. And so next thing I know, I'm styling a cover in eight pages for British Vogue with Warwick St. John. And 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 the the guy was the guy that was in the eternity campaign with Christy Turlington at the time. Um Norbert Michalik or something like that. And the woman was a model named Catherine Hurley, who's not the actress, but she was kind of a big model at that time. And now I'm a stylist because I've got a cover in six pages in British Vogue. So and there you I'm have like, it. There you instant go. tear sheets, right? <laughs> exactly. Instant tear sheets. And so I came you know back. I, you know I do fashion styling, right? <laughs> right? The only reason that was me, I came back with my like little New York book with my new <laughs> test in it, like a couple of tears that I had shot for like, you know, Ebony Man or something. And then, and then I was like, oh, and I also styled this. And my agents in Chicago were like, what? I was like, yeah. And they were like, we could do something with this. And I was like, I was very practical about it, though, because I was like, well, I think I should assist somebody and sort of learn the ins and outs. So they put me with the guy that I had worked with like for years as a model. And he taught me the good and the bad about being stylists. Um, Cause I think you need to learn the bad and then you figure out what you want to be and how you want to run your business. And um, I hated it. You hated styling. I hated styling. 
because I had been a model for like, I started modeling in 95. So when you're a model, you become lazy in a weird way because you show up, take off your clothes, put on other clothes. Then you take off those clothes, put your real clothes back on and then you leave. Yeah. But when you're a stylist, there's like a ton of work involved. And then you're also begging and then there's FedExes and then you're returning things. And then you're like the cop on set because you're watching like a $15,000 ring because, you know, model steal and then you're like okay. responsible for it. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into being a stylist. And I would get like, uh, I had a client that would be like purple. And I had to interpret what purple meant for a fashion shoot. You know what I mean? It's like, no, we and were talking so, about more like a mood. Right. And so, purple. but here I am running around and getting like a purple flask <laughs> yeah. and getting like, yes. you know, a purple dress and a purple shoe and a purple, right. you know, like this and that. And, you know, my, um, styling was very, is not very easy. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's morphed into this thing now where it's all about like celebrities. And I think that f celebrities ruined fashion, sadly. There was a moment where fashion, where celebrities made fashion, you know. There was a moment when, um, you know, uh, Madonna and the Versace campaign with the Dobermans. That was fashion. Um, uh, Cindy Crawford at the Oscars wearing head-to-toe Dolce & Gabbana right off the runway. You know, the model-turned-actress. That was fashion. Um, the supermodels who weren't just models, you know, Linda, Naomi, and Christy, Claudia, and uh, Cindy. That was that was fashion, and that was like this ultimate moment of like fashion celebrity. But then now it's less about now when I seen like someone like Naomi Watts on the cover of a magazine. It's not about what Naomi's wearing. It's about Naomi Watts. You know, when you see like maybe not so much with Zendaya because Zendaya looks like a model and when she's on the cover there's something interesting about what she's wearing or her yeah. hair or something but usually when it's like a model that's on the cover when it's an actress that's on the cover it's about that actress it's about what she's pushing and that's whereas, almost all it is now it's all, all the fashion magazines you know whereas when it's, it's a actresses. model it's like you most of the time you don't know who the model is yeah and so it's about the it's about the picture it's about the mood it's about the lighting it's about the dress it's about what uh, the whole thing together is supposed to be, you know, it's creating this image and it's not just about, Oh, I, you know, it's not Angelina Jolie talking about, you know, her divorce from Brad Pitt and, you know, her six kids finding love. Right. It's like literally just about a beautiful model wearing a beautiful dress and what's so important and what's important about that dress. It really is true. And I miss those days. I miss the days of like wanting to find, wanting to see who made the cover of Vogue. And I miss those days of really of advertising campaigns that really pushed it. It really created these moments in fashions where the picture became really iconic. Yes. You art. know, exactly. Art. Like, you know, the supermodels in the motorcycle hats and, you know, Which, on the by street the way, with the tools. J-Lo at the Super Bowl, if you know anything about fashion... She literally ripped off the Peter Lindbergh start of the, Peter Lindbergh says he started the supermodel craze because he put all those big girls that were runway girls on together in groups on magazine covers yep. right. and in magazines. Mm -hmm. So there's this amazing, I think it might be American Vogue, but it's probably Italian Vogue shoot where it's like Linda, Christy, Naomi, uh, Tatiana Patiz, like all these girls in the group, and they're wearing leather motorcycle hats, motorcycle jackets, and little like um, like 
like little floofy skirts, mm-hmm. right. you know, in bright colors. And then they all have on motorcycle boots. Iconic. And it's like iconic. That it's, and it's iconic. And then Jennifer Lopez at the is wearing the hat, the jacket, and she's got on the big tool skirt, and all her dancers have on the same thing. So all the fashion people like me are like, oh my God, it's <laughs> it's literally 1996 Peter Lindbergh. Oh God. You know, we're all having this moment. You yeah. know, we're all like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like because it's that reference and it takes us right back to that moment of like the supermodels when it was like, yes, it was like, yes, there were like five girls who were supermodels that sort of made the show. Absolutely. But still, it was about the show. Yeah. Yes. You know, it was about the Versace dress. It was about the Dolce & Gabbana homage right. to a certain sort of, to Sophia Loren. Yes. It was about... It was about the guest ads with yeah, Claudia Schiffer. Yeah, it was about Schiffer. the guest ads. Uh. That, but the guest ads that reference like literally like a, a Fellini, a still from yes. a Fellini movie from the yes. 1950s. Right. Yes, you know? yes, yes, like, yes. And, but, but you can't get that. Actresses can't act into that. Whenever I see a fashion movie and they don't cast a real model in it, they cast an actress behaving like a model or to be a model. It's like, no, nope, the body type is wrong. No, the way she's walking on the runway is wrong. No, the way she wears her makeup or her hair is wrong. That's what's special about a model. You know, not everybody can be a model. Yes, it's it, it's it, they're like gazelles. They're like they're unicorns. It's like and and there's something. I think one of the reasons why I wrote the book, there's something really wonderful and special about a model that's having her moment. And even guys, because it's, it's, it's fleeting. It's ephemeral. You know, it's, it's like, it's got to start and it's got to finish. Linda is no longer Linda, you know, and, and, and Shalom is no longer Shalom. Oh, I live. And, and, so when that happens and you can get that and you capture that and you get a girl that like is is capable of creating art without speaking, there's something that's so amazing about that. And yes. you just, just can't do it. It's, no. It makes me crazy. No, so I let's totally talk about agree. the book. So what was that really what inspired you to write the book? But as you can tell, I love fashion and I love models. So this was like the perfect marriage. So this was for you. it. Like it's two things I love. It's fashion and black women. Yeah. So literally, it's two things. It's three things I love: models of all races, black women specifically, because two incredibly strong, beautiful black women raised me to be who I am. Yes. And fashion, and fashion has always been incredibly important to me. It was the first place I, I. I sort of fell into where I felt safe and, and it was it was okay, you know, working in retail at fifteen, they didn't care if I was gay. My homosexuality actually made me special. Right. You know. I was the only guy in a woman's clothing store. And every woman that came through the door, like other women would be their salespeople, but they would find their way over to me and they would be like, What do you think of this shoe? Mm-hmm. What do you think of this dress? And I would be like, Girl, that is fantastic. It also comes in red. You know what I mean? And I would be like, Ooh, the pink would be fire on you, but you got to wear it with that black skirt you bought last week. And duh, 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 duh. you know, so that sort of formed me. And then, you know, the book just became I've always loved books. The book came up because of my love of books. I collect art books. I collect books on models and photography and and fashion. And um, in 2011, a book came out called Vogue Faces of Beauty, which is the British Vogue book. And it was about models who had been in British Vogue. And so I got the book. 
super expensive oversized got it from amazon it came to my door ripped the box open started reading it it's like two o'clock in the morning i get to the end and there are only two black models in the book it's naomi and it's iman and it's a really bad picture of iman and you got to you got to search. You got to work to find the bad <laughs> I know I was going to say, you really got to work to find a bad Especially picture. Especially Iman yeah. out of Africa, Iman. When yeah. Iman okay. first got to the United States and there was that whole myth, which was a lie about her not being able to speak English. Yeah, they and just found they her. They found, like, she the... was a sheep herder or something <laughs> yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Iman wow, speaks like eight English, eight, eight, Iman speaks eight languages yeah. and they found her on the campus of the University of Nairobi. Like, and she's the, the daughter of a diplomat. Like, literally the smartest woman in the room. But they had to bring her to the United States and create this myth about her. Like, oh, we found her in the bush. You know, topless, right. wearing a grass, you know, a, yeah. a, a skirt made of mud. Exactly. And Iman is like, bitch, I speak Italian, French, <laughs> Arabic, like English, like Dutch. Like, like she's so real. Like, like, stop it. Like, can you please... So the British Vogue book came out. There were only the two models. If you go on Amazon to this day, there's a review of the book by me. And I'm like, this book sucks. Where is where is Veronica Webb? Where yeah. is Alec Weck? Where is Leah Kabidi? Where are the queens? You know, like, you know, how dare you? And that night I wrote down and off the top of my head, I came up with like 80 models. And so I did some more research on the internet and I was like, there's no book like this. There are other black books out there. There just wasn't an art book devoted to black models. Which is amazing when you think about it. It's stunning. Yeah. It's stunning. And so I had my little list and I think within a week I had done, I called up the people that I knew. Because the other thing about these, these books that were compilation books about models was that they never talked to the model. Like if I had crazy stories like about my life as a model, you know, then I knew these girls, you know, that had crisscrossed the globe. They must have had crazy stories. Oh, yeah. And models love to talk about themselves, you know, because they so often in their work don't get to talk. And so I just started, the first person I called up was my, my girl, Shakara Dar who um, had done Sports Illustrated and Victoria's Secret. And sadly, her picture didn't make it into the book because the book is an art book. But her interview was, her interview was okay. I tease her to this day about the interview because she tried to control her narrative. So I knew Shakara from Chicago when we were catalog, you know, queens. But Shakara all of a sudden got the come up. And like, so in her interview, she was all the big money jobs, this and the big money jobs, that. And I was like, no, girl, I want to talk to you about shaving your head and losing all your clients. I want to talk to you about dyeing your hair platinum. I want to talk to you about, you know, living in Paris. I want like the real. But she wanted to give me the, you know, the 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 Sports Illustrated, you know, answer. But I took it because you meet people where you find them. You take them where you got it. And her interview is really beautiful anyway. And if there's a volume two, which it probably will be, she'll make the cut in volume two. I was like, I got a really good idea for volume two that's different from volume one. But I can't tell you, but it's fire. (laughs) Anyway, um... And then the second interview was a woman named Tamiko Frazier that I had met in passing here in L.A. Right. And told Tamiko what I was doing. We had exchanged numbers, but we didn't know each other very well. And um, told Tamiko. And Tamiko was like, oh, absolutely. Two hours later, by the time she was done, it felt like I had just had the best sex of my life because she just gave me everything. 
and I actually think I was like, girl, this was like, I got my virginity back and you took it. She was like, did I pop your cherry? And I was like, yes, girl. Yes, you did. Because she told the stories. Yeah. You know, she talked about being in Paris and, you know, waiting in line for three hours to get to a, to get to the desk to show her book and for them to tell her right then, oh, we're not seeing black girls this season. Oof. And she was like, excuse me. Well, why don't you just put a sign down says that says no black girls so that all these black girls don't have to stand here for three hours waiting to talk to you. Right. You know, she talked about being like a size two, but designers telling her, well, your hips are still too big or, or your butt is too round. Things that are wow. uh, that are, you know, the black girl body. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Um, she talked about being the dark skinned girl. She talked about lying about her age because she could. Yeah. You know, she was late in the game getting in when she got discovered. But it's a young woman's game. So she was like, I shaved all four years. You know, I was 25. I became 21. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That was the moment I knew I had a book that the stories could be as compelling as the pictures. Yeah. I knew the I knew that the pictures would be compelling. Tomiko's interview was where I was like, okay. If you can get these girls to really take off the makeup and take out the weave and really tell the stories, then you got something. And yeah. I think I got it. I think that, you know, I think that the people that take the time to read the book and really sort of flip through it and really read the, the book, they come away with like, wow, it's not just, oh, I'm a pretty girl. And somebody told me I was pretty and now I'm, I'm rich. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. their struggle. But let's this talk sacrifice. about that and the section. So you have the book that is in three sections: the Trailblazers, mm -hmm. the, God the Godmother, Mother, which is Beth Ann Hardison. Beth Ann Hardison has her own section. She honey. has her own section, and then the Supremes. So mm. talk a little bit about the Trailblazers. So the book inadvertently turns out to be the history of the black model in fashion and in advertising. That was not the book I set out to write. I don't think you can talk about modeling for black women without talking about Ebony. And um, Ebony started in the mid-1940s. And that was the first place where black models could actually be seen in magazines. That's like literally the beginning of advertising. You know, before that, when you saw ads in mainstream magazines, black people were maids or butlers or they were in the background. You know, but Ebony was like here. Ebony was literally what Life magazine and those wonderful magazines from the 40s that were like slices of Americana, like Time magazine and Life magazine, yeah. Ebony was that for black people. Mm. So there was a, there was a, now there was a market for black models other than like church fashion shows or like charity fashion shows that were black charities. So but initially, the, was it more, was it black models just in the ads or were they doing? They were doing editorials. They were doing editorials. There would be fashion in Ebony okay. Magazine, but then they would do black ads in, in Ebony Magazine. So two things are pivotal in black at the start of black modeling. Lucky Strike, the cigarette company, decides to mirror their white ad with a black ad. Because up to that point, there was, there was like a law on the books in TV and film where you couldn't show a black person as equal to a white person. Wow. <laughs> so black people always had to be like the maid, the butler, the cook. They could never have a position that was equal to a white position. And that sort of thing, that was in the movie industry, but it played out in advertising also. 
Lucky Strike did an ad where there was a white woman who was in a fern dressed very glamorously holding a cigarette. And they were like, black folks smoke cigarettes too, so we're going to do the same ad with the black model. And I believe that model was Sarah Lou Harris, who didn't make the book, even though I wanted her to. She didn't make the book because I couldn't find that ad. Um, and that was sort of the start of advertisers actually micro advertising towards the black community. Mm -hmm. right? And in a way that was that was equal to their white counterparts, no longer separate, but equal, but equal. So then you've got Ebony, but Ebony was troubling at its inception because Ebony was using light skin, light, bright, almost white models okay. back mm. then. Right. So it was very difficult for like dark skin girls to get into Ebony because Ebony was still trying to mirror like uh, was still caught up in the like the lighter you are, the better you are, which is a colorism in the black community. Wow. But it starts with Ebony and of course it starts with Jet and then it goes from there. And then it goes into like those models trying to pursue work. Those models got frustrated with the kind of work they were getting in the United States and the amount of work. And then a couple of them went to Europe and that would be Dorothea Towles. And uh, she becomes a house model for Christian Dior and the first model to do the couture shows. So she sort of opened up Europe. And then there was a model who was big with Ebony who started her own agency and is one of the first black agencies in the U.S. And um, she actually started representing black models and started representing the girls that were workers. And so she represented Dorothy, Dorothea Towles and she represented Helen Williams. And she told Helen Williams to go to Paris like Dorothea Towles did and see what will happen for her. And then Helen goes to Europe and she ends up doing the shows and becomes the darling of, of, of the couture. And, and that's the first dark-skinned model to break into Europe. So if there were no Helen, there would be no Naomi. If there were no Helen, there would be no Iman. So it really sort of tracks this sort of uh, uh, course of how the black model navigated fashion. And then, you know, both Dorothea Towles and, 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 and Helen William comes back, both come back to the United States because here is where the money is in advertising. And Helen Williams is the first um, dark-skinned model to Noxima ad. Yes. Uh, um, Budweiser. You know, Boulevard watches. You know, she sort of changes the game to black black models can do luxury goods. You know, back then, a Boulevard watch was like you know oh, yeah. our equivalent of a Rolex. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. is you this the fifties? This is the fifties. Yes, this is the fifties. And then it just you know, then I just lay it out like that throughout the book. The Supremes is like the models alphabetically, but if you look at the Supremes, it's all the benchmarks. It's Donya Luna, the first black woman on the cover of American Harper's Bazaar, but also the first black woman on the cover of any Vogue, British Vogue. And Donya Luna's story, I can't believe, hasn't been made into a movie because if you research Donya Luna, she's probably um, um, suffering. She's probably bipolar. Yeah. Because people talk a lot about like she'd be really high and she'd be really low. Really? One day she'd be walking around barefoot in the middle of winter. The next day she would be like depressed and you wouldn't, you know, couldn't get out of bed. And the next day she'd be like so high and she'd like have shaved her head or, you know, drawn a dot in the middle of her, you know, like. And what yeah. we know now is like manic behavior. She was probably suffering from then. But oh, definitely. people thought it was eccentric and exactly. she was wonderful because here's this six foot one, you know, beautiful Amazon, Amazonian looking black woman. Even when you look at some of the pictures, like 
like her eyes. You're like, oh yeah, something's something's going on. Something's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I think there needs to be a little bit of madness in fashion. Right. You need the you know you need the crazy designer. You need the the whack job uh, uh, photographer. Well, you those need pictures the, are legendary. Her with the little, with the silver. The yes. Dress. Yeah. Yes. The Iconic. Paco Rabanne. Yes, yes. Absolutely. There's a picture I wanted so badly of her. Um, I think it's one of the most beautiful fashion images ever. It's her sitting in this gold dress that's cut down the middle and she's sitting she's got her you know her wonderful 50s bouffant uh 60s bouffant and she's smoking a cigarette and it's black and white and she looks so rich and so elegant and so fuck you and it's just like yes girl be the biggest model in the world you know be the muse for david bailey and richard avedon okay you know like slay everybody barushka who Gene Shrimp, Gene Shrimp, and what? Yeah, Dovima, who's that? Yes, because we're talking about this is because this is Donia Luna. You yeah. know, this is my moment. Um, okay, so let's talk. We gotta talk about the Godmother. Yeah, we gotta talk about Beth. Godmother. So Beth Ann Hardison is important to fashion. Beth Ann Hardison is legend. Oh God, she is Black history. So Beth Ann Hardison is your quintessential New Yorker, always like you know hustling to make it happen. Yeah. Um, started as a model. She, well, she started working in fashion on Fifth Avenue. She was a garmento, is what oh, she'll tell you. Okay. Like she was like the sales girl at the at the you know she worked at a button store. Oh, Back wow. then, you know, designers would come in and they would be like, "I need like a button for this dress, these cultural dresses, blah blah blah." And Beth Ann was that girl that was behind the counter. And so, like, she would be like, "Well, I love these buttons, and I love this belt, and I love this trim, and da 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 da." So. Bethann dressed like a black girl. You know, she'd come to work, you know, in her outfit, looking good, hair done, you know. And Willie Smith, who is an iconic black designer, who unfortunately we lost to AIDS, Willie Smith would see her walking down Fifth Avenue and he would be like, who is that girl? Yeah. And so Willie Smith was designing, Was there was a buzz about him and he was designing for a company called Digits. And he needed a model to like go with him to show clothes to the clients. And so he one day stopped her on the street and Beth Ann was like, who are you? And he was like, I'm Willie Smith and I'm a designer and I want you to be my designer. And Beth Ann was like, um, I got a real job. I got a kid, Kadeem Hardison. And she was like, let me ask my boss if I can do this, but it has to work around my work schedule. Goes upstairs, asks her boss. Her boss is with these two Jewish women, and they're like, "Oh, this be so nice for you. Yes, as long as you back on, you know, do it on your, do it on your, your, your break, you know, do it on, do it on your lunch. As long as you back here, you know, punch making, back in, making our money. You, you, you good. Yeah. And so she started like doing stuff with Willie, and Willie introduced her. How about this? Willie introduces Beth Ann to Bruce Weber, one of the most iconic photographers of all time. And Bruce starts testing with Beth Ann to learn lighting. Wow. So all these iconic, crazy photos of Bruce Weber for Abercrombie & Fitch and, and, and for Vogue and Italian Vogue, where he shoots Naomi and he shoots Tyson and he shoots black people like no other. Yeah, he learned how to do he that. He learned how to do that lighting on Beth Ann Hardison, okay. ladies and gentlemen. So Beth Ann That's awesome. Like goodness. is on Fifth Avenue. She's doing shows for Willie Smith. Then she meets, you know, Stephen Burroughs, Halston, Giorgio de St. Angelo, all the big, you know, 70s designers. And she becomes amused to them because back then models didn't walk down the runway. Models danced down the runway. Each girl had her own personality. Right. And Beth Ann will tell you that she was a dancer. 
That's what she really wanted to do more than anything, but she had to get a job. Yeah. So Beth Ann would dance down the runway and give you theater, and that's what she was known for. And she was like this muse to all these important 70s designers. And Beth Ann ended up going to the Battle of Versailles. So she was there. Like Beth Ann is literally there when all this stuff happens. Willie Smith was the first black multi-million dollar designer on Fifth Avenue. Um, she's mused to Halston and she's mused to Stephen Burrow and she's mused to all these like major designers who's like, you know, New York, Fifth Avenue in like the 70s. You know, that's it. And then she is in the Battle of Versailles where five American designers battle five French designers for the title of five of who's the best designer in the world. And they was such a fabulous documentary. Uh, Guys, if you haven't seen it, you have to you have to see that. Um, the importance of the Battle of Versailles, and I started to even actually give the Battle of Versailles section in the book. But again, the book is a photography book. Yeah. It's not. It's an art book. It's not a history book. But you cannot underplay the importance of the Battle of Versailles to fashion and specifically to the black models. Correct. So these five designers take a, like twenty models over, like twenty five models over, but they take their muses. And 11, 10 or 11 of those models are black. And it was the first time that a European audience of fashion designers and couture buyers and royalty saw that many models of color at once. And what, what year are we talking this about? This is 1971. Wow. Yeah. And these girls, it's Pat Cleveland and Tookie Sm- Smith, and who's Willie Smith's sister, yep. and Alva Chan and Billy Blair. These are the muses of Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And it's Beth Ann Hardison. And these girls give you a show. They dance down the runway. They, br- they twirl. They bring these dresses to life. And the American designers beat the French designers. And there's so much crazy that's going on at the Battle of Versailles. Um, uh, uh, Josephine Baker performs. Liza Minnelli performs. I mean, talk about an iconic fashion moment and a gay moment and a black moment. I mean, that's the beginning. To me, that's the beginning of black girl magic right there. Because from that moment on... All the European designers are like, it's not a show unless Pat Cleveland is in the show. That's right. Unless Billy Blair or Alva Chen are in the show. Unless yeah. Beth Ann Hardison are in the show. And um, and those girls are so fetid that Pat Cleveland is like, I'm not coming back to the United States until they put a black woman on the cover of, of American Vogue. So she stays her beautiful butt in, in Paris, being the toast of Europe, doing the couture. That's right. And breaking open the runways. I mean, literally, if there were not these girls, we wouldn't be talking about Naomi Campbell. We wouldn't be talking about Veronica Webb. When I see Veronica Webb on the runway in the late 80s and the 90s doing her shtick, she's literally doing Pat Cleveland. Right. She looked like Pat Cleveland. She behaved when she's coming down the runway pretending to put on her makeup at, at, at Chanel Couture. She's literally giving you Pat Cleveland. It's an homage to Pat. Yeah. absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like... The, the Battle of Versailles, ladies and gentlemen, like like literally, that's like everything. That's like a moment. That's yes. a moment yeah. in Black history, right there. So then Beth Ann, she then starts her. She comes back. She's still doing shows. She's yeah. responsible for bringing um, many European designers to the United States and many um, Asian designers to the United States because she now has from doing the runway shows to them. She has these relationships, so she's she's like this insider. She's Friends with designers. So Click Models, which is a huge agency from the 80s, and started this sort of wave of the odd model. She is one of the first bookers there because she's friends with Francis 
grill and um, the original, the owners of Click Models and starts her age and, st- and works with them. Like a year into it, she's like, begins to see the business of it. And she's like, well, why are these black models being paid less than white models? Uh-huh. Why is this model, you know, getting this and this model isn't? She decides to, she decides to start Beth Ann Management. Yes, um, because that's what, you know, we see with the ba- battle of herself. We see the, it opening up, but there's still, there's still not parity. It's still know? not parity. Yeah. Black models are still not being used. You know, there was this myth that you couldn't put black models in winter clothes. They were only used for spring and summer collections because of their bodies and the color of their skin. Like, I I hate hearing that kind of stuff. It's crazy. It's it's craziness. I hate hearing that kind of it's It's so ignorant and just so stupid. Who believes that? Who believes this? But it was... (laughs) It it was this... It was was this prevalent notion for a while. And... um, So Beth Ann starts her own agency and her, her own management company and makes her son into an actor. And right. she discovers Tyson in New York, makes him into this model. His contract changes the game for male models. Yeah. Um, but she worked with Veronica Webb. She worked with Rashumba Williams. She helped Rashumba Williams get into Sports Illustrated. Before that, yeah, there were black girls in Sports Illustrated. But seeing Rashumba Williams, this dark black black girl with an afro natural in hair the, natural hair yeah in the in sports illustrated that's game changing yes you know what i mean and that's like those are the kind of things that beth ann was like behind the scenes like you know figuring out and working out right Amazing. you know and then she starts the black girl coalition in the in the 80s which was a in the late 80s early 90s which was a at first it was a it was a group of black models and it wasn't started to be this like political arm of fashion it was actually started to celebrate how well black models were doing. Because in the late 80s, black models were working, I mean, Kirstie Bowser, Naomi, Lana Ogilvie, Beverly Peel, um, Beverly Johnson and Iman were still going. Uh, Tyra had uh, had ex- exploded onto the scene. Um, Rashumba was still going. Aya Thorgren, Ilanka. Black girls couldn't stop working in the late 80s into the beginning of the 90s. Not to mention the time bomb that Naomi was when she hit. Like, it was like, that was the heyday. So the Black Girl Coalition, started by Beth Ann Hardison and Iman, was literally to celebrate the successes of the Black model as an editorial girl. And back then, you couldn't, there were no plus, it wasn't plus girls, and it wasn't catalog girls. It was editorial girls. You had to be an editorial girl to be a member of the Black Girl Coalition. And then Beth Ann thought, well, since it's us, and we're making money, and we're somewhat famous, we should, there should be a charity aspect of it. So they worked with the homeless in, in, in New York. So that's why the Black Girl Coalition started. But then when black models started getting iced out and, you know, there was a whiteout on the runways and black models started work, stopped working, that's when the Black Girl Coalition became political. And they were like, look, Fifth Avenue, you need to lose us as much as you use black people represent this percentage of the population. So this percentage of black people and people of color, not just black, but Latin, Asian, whatever, should be represented in advertising and right. in fashion. And so that they was, became adv- that's when they became political. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I love Beth. Ann. There's a quote in the book where she says, you know, people call and they're like, Oh, this girl, she's so exotic. Let's say she's Greek. She's like, she's Puerto Rican. Yes. <laughs> you know, stop it. <laughs> But that's the, again, 
and that's the mythology of fashion. Yeah. There always has to be a story. Iman right. just couldn't be a co-ed. No. She had to be like out of Africa. This girl couldn't just be like from like a Bariqua from, you no, know, no. from like Brooklyn. Uh-uh. She had to be like, you know, Puerto like Rican. Greek? She had to be like, right. She had to be Greek. Greek, Croatian. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but then it's like, <laughs> she's from 127. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's literally going to take a bus. to. She's going to take the, she going to take the six to yeah. the job. She's from Avenue C. Yeah, I'm trying to pull right. myself off the floor. This is I'm fucking amazing. So why do I I remember hearing the first time I, I read a comment like this. I was probably in my twenties and I was actually shocked by it that somebody said, Well, you know, it's black people that segregate, you know, they have their ebony and their and it's like what what really so why do we need a book about black models? Why is it important? Why does why is representation important? That's such a loaded question for me. Um, Before the book came out, somebody actually said to me in an interview, one of the first interviews I gave about the book, they were like, so what's it like to write a black book? And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, this isn't a black book. I said, this is a fashion book. This book is about all the people of every race, every sexuality, every sex, every creed, every nationality that come together to create beautiful images of beautiful women. That's what fashion is. Fashion is incredibly democratic in that way. However, the subject of the book is black women and black skin is always politicized. So, yes, on its surface, it is a black book. But this does not mean that you have to be black to enjoy this book. Hello. Say And I said it like that with an attitude. Um, I think this book was necessary because the British Vogue book only had two black models in it. And they didn't put Donielle Luna in the book, who was the first black woman on the cover of British Vogue. I think this book was necessary because there's still economic disparity within the modeling community where black models are concerned. So many of these girls that are in the book tell stories about finding out that they're on set from, for, for cosmetic campaigns and cosmetic contracts and their contracts are less than their counterparts, but they're doing the same work. I also think that this book was important because we're in the middle of a black renaissance right now. I think there's shows like Insecure in Atlanta and Black Panther, the movie Black Panther, crossing the $1 billion mark. And I think with Trump being in office and, 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 and people walking through the streets, armed white militia walking through the streets with submachine guns, automatic weapons, and, and carrying tiki torches that they bought from Best Buy, um, which black people would not be afforded the same ability to do. Um, we're at a weird time in the universe, but I also think that fashion is morphing into something else. The Me Too movement happened in fashion as well as in in entertainment. The plus size model wants wants to be seen as not just a, a plus, an addition or a footnote to fashion. She wants to be seen as a valid model. Um, uh, there are uh, transgender models want to be seen. I think there's this moment that all this stuff socially is happening in the universe and in, in, in real life, and it's also happening in fashion. And I think so often 
fashion mirrors what's happening in the bigger world. I actually wrote this book because I think that um, things happen first in fashion, like the trends, and then they happen in the bigger world. You know, Ebony starts using black models and then advertising starts using black models. A dark skin model ends up on the cover of a magazine because some gay guy is like, you are fabulous, girl. And I'm going to I'm going to put you on the magazine and I'm going to fight to put you on the cover of a magazine. I'm going to fight to put you inside a magazine. So there's something subversive there because so often gay guys can't be out of the closet, but they worked on Fifth Avenue. They worked on Madison Avenue in advertising or they were fashion photographers or they were the stylist and the hair and makeup artist and they were the ones that were pushing to put black models in shows and in magazines and in ads you know so there's this really wonderful thing between the gay guy the the lgbtq community and the black community that happens and i think that um we can't overlook the uh, idea of colorism that's not exclusive to black people colorism exists in the latin community oh yeah one of the most important things that's happened with me with this book is my sister who's not really my sister, but I was, uh, we were raised together. And so Donna saw the book. I grew up with Donna and Donna saw the book and Donna broke into tears the first time she held the book in her hand. And I actually had the, the, the um, honor to be there. And I was like, why are you crying? Like, yes, I wrote a book, but yeah. I've done, you know, 50, I was being all fancy. I was like, I've done a million things, you know, I've been <laughs> on television. And Donna was like, you put a, Black model, you put a dark skin model on the cover of your book, and I never felt pretty growing up, and I never thought that you thought I was pretty. Oh. And there... And I was like, what? It is. So we're still, as a race and as a people, grappling with skin color. Yeah. We're still, as a race, grappling with, uh, with fairness. And so until we get to this place where we're all equal, there is going to be a need for us to single out each other and exalt us in ways that the power base isn't. That's right. What did Oprah, Oprah said in the book? There's a quote from Oprah. Uh, she's speaking about Alec Weck. And Alec Weck is this wonderful Sudanese model who exploded in fashion. We hadn't seen, we'd seen African girls, you know, but Alec was really African. Yes. Dark, black, black, black super Ugh. short hair. Yeah. Um, uh, angular looking, but still had that. When Alec started, Alec was not a fashion body. She was super tall, long limbs, but she still had that African girl, big high booty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So when Alec hit fashion, it was like she was polarizing. It was like, that's not a model. That's not fashion. That's not the right body type. And Oprah sums it up succinctly. She was like, if I had seen images of Alec when I was growing up, I would have felt much differently about my blackness. That's right. And that's important. Diversity, inclusion matter. We have a whole world full of little girls that aren't going to be blonde haired and blue and blue eyed. And they need to feel like they're beautiful. They need to feel like they're as special as anybody else. And that doesn't mean I'm bashing the girl that's got blonde hair and blue eyes. I'm not bashing the white girl. No, but they have. But they have. Images everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have, you know, period. They right? have, period. Yeah. Any magazine. Any and you're absolutely any, yeah. right. We I, need to be exalting. I was on a set for Northwestern Mutual styling a gig. And one of the scenes was a, 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 
parents at a quinceanera. And so I'm steaming out this giant tool quinceanera dress. I mean, we're talking 100 <laughs> yards of tool. And I'm pissed off because I'm sweating because the steamer and the layers and da 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 da. I'm trying to get the tool to be bigger and bigger because the bigger the tool is, the longer, the bigger the dress is. And so I've got the, I'm styling the, 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 the Latin agent, the daughter who's quinceanera, and I'm styling the mother and I'm styling the grandmother. And we're all sitting in the same room and I'm talking and I'm telling them about my book that's coming out, you know, coming out next year. And I'm telling this book about black supermodels and da, 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 da. And they're like enraptured. And they're like, your next book should be a book about Latin women. And I was like, <laughs> no. And then I was like, wait, can a black gay man tell the story of Latin women? And the oldest woman in the room says, as long as you tell it correctly, you can. Oh, mm. hello. They want it. Everybody wants it. Yeah, you want to see yourself. Everybody needs it. That's right. Well. <sighs> on that okay on that fantastic note, note you gotta let our our listeners know where they can buy the book and where are you gonna what you where are you going next with it you can buy this book anywhere and i'm so happy and so proud about that um amazon has it it's been number one a couple of times on amazon which blows my mind Barnes and Noble everywhere has it, which also blows my mind because one of the reasons why the book is so inexpensive is because I am not going to cry. And Abrams, my publisher, and I worked hand in hand with this, but we had this very definite idea about it. We wanted the book to be inexpensive enough that a little girl of color could walk into a bookstore and buy the book. You know, Tashin and Fiden and, and all these other, you know, exclusive um, publishers put out $300 books. Yeah. There's a Naomi book that's $1,500. There's a $700 wow. Giselle book. This book is $50. It's on sale places now, you know. Right. Um, a little black girl should be able to walk into a bookstore and, and have that experience of going and finding it in the stacks and picking it out and taking it to the counter and buying it, carrying it home under her arms and unwrapping it. You know, that's important. Yes. So we wanted this book that cost me an arm, a leg, and a kidney to produce because I had to pay the licensing fees myself out of pocket. We wanted this book to be very inexpensive. Um, so the book is at Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. But what I want is for people to go to their neighborhood bookstore and buy the book. Go to a black bookstore and buy the book because they have it. Bookstores are a dying breed yeah. because of Amazon. Yeah. A week after the book came out, Amazon put it on sale. And I was like, why? As the author, I was like, why is my book on sale as soon as it came out? And that's because Amazon undercuts the price of every other yeah. of their competition. This book has been embraced by museum stores across the world. So you can go to a museum bookstore. You can go to the MCA in Chicago. You can go to the African-American Museum in Washington. You can go to the Smithsonian and you can buy this book. That's amazing. Buy this book someplace. Go to your neighborhood bookstore and buy this book. 
And you're still doing appearances. I'm still doing appearances, girl. Sign it. You can come. You can meet Marcellus and get your book. You can do, ladies I'm, and gentlemen. You can do. I God, I'm all <laughs> over the place. Book Soup, which is this legendary bookstore, and I can't believe I'm in Book Soup because I love a bookstore. So where can people follow you to get all the information? Info? Um, Supreme Models has its own uh, Instagram page. So Supreme Models Book at Supreme Models book is okay. the Instagram page for the book. Yes, we'll list all that. In the- and I have my own Instagram and my own Twitter, and so does the book. So I'm online. Okay, I'm yes. On social media. We'll be at, we'll be up in that book suit. You know come that. Book, come you, on you now. <laughs> what I want for the book is like I carry my book with me sort of everywhere because I'm trying to get all the models to sign the book because oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love I'm the author. I sign books. I love that. Yeah. But I want these icons to sign the book too because they are the history. They are the trailblazers. They're the ones that broke that glass ceiling and changed the way that women of color are seen globally. How many do you have to go? How many? Uh, oh my gosh, so many. Do, I mean, yeah. so many. But I mean, I've got some Because there was a few girls ones. at the Trina Turk signing. There was some. Yes, yeah, there yeah. were. Teresa Hayes was there. Yeah. Um, I just got Carrie Young to sign mine. Rashumba signed mine. Veronica Webb has signed it all over the place. She okay. wrote the foreword. Yep. Beth Ann, of course, signed it. Um, yeah, I'm not going to stop until I get Naomi. Okay. <laughs> the queen. Yes. Come on now. Like- <laughs> Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you so much. Oh, wonderful, Marcellus. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. It's been our utmost honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. Also, don't forget, I teach a monthly Vogue workshop that I would love to see you guys at. So come and Vogue and have a good time. WorkDanceClass.com. That's W-E-R-Q-U-E DanceClass.com. See you later.